Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast and happy Monday. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about a really cool offer, a free 30-day trial where you can test out the ad-free experience, plus get other great podcasts from the Bulwark, like like The Next Level with uh, Tim Miller or The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. Plus, there is, for Bulwark Plus members, a secret show, which includes a Tuesday edition with me and my colleague Mona Charon. And on Friday's secret podcast, uh, Sarah Longwell and Jonathan Last take over. So check it out. Go to thebulwark.com slash charlie, and you can get this free 30-day trial offer. Just check it. Check it out. So because it is Monday, I am joined on the podcast with my good friend and colleague, Will Salatan. Good morning, Will. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. In honor of spring, it's like the freezingest day of the year in Washington. Okay, what is freezingest day of the year? <laughs> it's just like we got Come this. Uh, it was. Number. No, it's pathetic. All right, what? it's gonna it's gonna get down to like twenty. Okay, so oh, okay, all right. that okay, it's twenty here. Okay, I get that. <laughs> so that is fair. So you confess before we started this podcast, you didn't really watch the Oscars because I, I feel it's countercultural to talk about anything. And we, we're going through the prequel of World War Three, but it feels countercultural to talk about anything other than what happened at the Oscars when um, Will Smith walked up and slapped the bejabbers out of Chris Rock. But you, you you didn't watch that. I didn't watch it. I will say that I knew that it was Chris Rock and Will Smith and the brotherhood of Wills is strong. So I decided up front, knowing nothing about this, no. that I was on Will Smith's side. Oh, no, 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 no. See, I, here's my, my pro tip. If, if you want to retain your faith in civilization and civilized values, do not get involved in the social media war. By, was it the right thing to do to punch a guy out for telling a joke? Because, you know, is violence? Well, I just don't. I. Okay, I also told you that I had the flashback to when I was on uh, talk radio, and if if I had a talk show, a call-in show, I could get three and a half hours out of this one topic, <laughs> just, just the one topic. So the biggest winner last night from the moment that Will Smith jumped on that stage and walked up and slapped Chris Rock in front of millions of people, you know who the biggest winner was? Who? Joe Biden. Because because right now, this is the story that has just sucked all of the oxygen out of, you know, the gaffer around the world or the right. or as I would put it, air quotes, gaff around the world. Did you ever watch the movie? Don't look up. No, no. Okay. So you really got to get out more. Will, you really ought to get out more. Okay, so one of the funny things about that movie, and I'm not saying it's a great movie or should have won any awards, so don't DM me on all of this. But in this movie, of course, there's this meteor. I don't want to have any spoilers. Meteor hurtling towards Earth, which will destroy all life as we know it. And there are these scientists who are trying to get the word out that we ought to perhaps be concerned about that and maybe do something about that. But one of the juxtapositions in the movie is the way that the media is obsessed with various social media celebrity controversies like, you know, did so-and-so break up with so-and-so? And it feels like we live through this. I mean, the, the power of that satire is the fact that you just turn on the television, turn on television or go on Twitter and you see it playing out in real time. So, yes, we have you know Ukraine being you know battered into uh, oblivion. We have this uh, ongoing terror attack. And I want to talk about your piece today in the Bulwark. And yet, did you see? that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. That's the big story of the day. Okay, but Charlie, you're telling me something useful, which is that this was an unprovoked war of choice on the part of Will Smith. Is that correct? 
See, that's you're luring me into a conflict. I need to draw a red line. I don't want to. I do not want to actually get into whether or not it was. Un, it was a joke that Will Smith thought it was offensive because it was about his wife who um, has shaved off her hair because she's got a medical condition. And I think that one of the rules in life is be very, very careful in joking about uh, people's spouses, particularly if they have uh, difficult medical conditions. On the other hand, if we punched out everybody that told a joke we didn't like or said something that offended us, we would be in a dark place and we may be headed there. Right. Okay. So I know there's a dispute about punching down versus punching up, but I think most of us can agree on a rule against punching. And so, yeah, I would, given the information that you've presented to me, I am on Chris Rock's side. I am pro-joke and I am anti-punch. Okay, well, now, a couple things about it, since since you've now lured me into uh, this this quagmire. Um, it is, there are two things about it. Number one, and I, I've, I've unfortunately spent way too much time, as you can tell, watching this on YouTube. Will Smith made it sure that he wasn't going to punch him with a closed fist. It was obviously an open hand. Otherwise, there would have been blood and perhaps teeth all over the place because he hit him pretty hard. So it was open hand. That's number one. Number two, Chris Rock, who, as probably most professional comedians, is used to hecklers, just sort of went on with the show, which is kind of amazing. And okay, so you know we I have already spent way too much time on all of this. Where do you want to start? Um, by the way, so uh, I, I feel like this is a follow up from our podcast last Monday, where we talked about the fact that uh, Vladimir Putin has gone from um, simply waging war, uh, being a war criminal, to being the world's bloodiest terrorist, which is your piece, brilliant piece in the Bulwark today, and I think really does identify this moment that we're in, where you have Russia that is not waging anything remotely like a conventional war. It is specifically targeting civilians, which meets even Russia's, as you point out, Russia's own definition of terrorism. Yeah. So, I mean, we all can can agree that Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine, right? I mean, it's deliberately targeting civilians. It's destroying property. These are not military targets. They're just like bombarding them into submission or or attempting to bombard them into submission. Um, What makes it terrorism is that they're not just doing this for the sake of the cruelty of it. I mean, they, you know, they have an objective. At this point, Russia having failed in its objective, original objective, which was to topple the Ukrainian government, is is now playing for concessions. They're going to try to take as much territory as they can. And there's going to be some kind of, you know, they have negotiations going on in Belarus. They have other negotiations going on and they're going to try to cut a deal. And they're going to, Russia is going to try to get as good a deal as they can on the way out. They want territory from Ukraine in exchange for no longer killing Ukrainian civilians. That is terrorism. So that is, that is the international definition of terrorism. That is the Russian definition of terrorism. And Vladimir Putin has always said ever since 9-11, before 9-11, Russia is going to lead the world in confronting terrorism by which he meant, you know, those nasty Muslims or Arabs or whoever it was that wasn't Russians that was killing innocent people. But terrorism is not about your ethnicity. It's about your behavior and the behavior of Russia in Ukraine, as it was in Syria, as it was in Grozny, is terrorism. Okay, so your last paragraph is really haunting. Today, the world's bloodiest terrorist is Putin himself. And if in exchange for ending this war, he extracts concessions from Ukraine, he will have succeeded. Okay, so will. It seems more likely than not that that's the way this is going to end if it ends, that if it ends, um, he will be able to say that he has uh, certain territorial gains, that he has extracted certain concessions. And so the question is, 
Is the end game going to look like this act of international state terrorism has succeeded? I'm afraid so, Charlie. Ooh, that's I, grim. I, that's grim. I, yeah, I. That's okay, grim. so grim for a Monday morning. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so it's a better world than the world in which they succeed, and you know they go in in three days. The Russians knock out the Ukrainian government. Yeah. Zelensky flees or is killed or whatever, and you know then they have a you know puppet state. That's worse. But in the meantime, so many Ukrainians have died. You would like it not to be in vain, but. Everyone is talking now about on what terms the war would end. It drives me crazy that they're talking about terms like like the woman is supposed to negotiate with her rapist. Right. No, the rapist should be in jail. Right. That's that's the metaphor that's in my head here. But the terms that are being discussed, what kind of neutrality will Ukraine agree to? Having just been invaded by this country next door, they have to limit their defense, limit their alliances. You know, what sort of land will they concede? Will they concede Crimea? Will they concede Donbass? This after the Russians having seized Crimea in 2014, used Crimea for its next for the next stage of Russian aggression to steal more Ukrainian land. All of this drives me crazy. Which also suggests that 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 while uh, many leaders in the West are really concerned about the dangers of action, the dangers of inaction are pretty obvious. They're palpable. The inaction after the invasion of Georgia, the inaction after the invasion of Crimea, the inaction about Putin's war crimes in Syria. That's why we are where we are right now. So the danger of inaction in many ways is equal to, if not greater than, the dangers of action. Yes, yes. And in your newsletter, you've written eloquently about the dangers of inaction. I am looking backward at when should we have started to pay attention? And the answer is forever ago, right? Yeah. But that when I was looking back at the history of what I think of now as Russian state terrorism, it goes back, you know, 25 years. It goes back to, it goes back past Syria. It goes back to uh, Grozny, uh, Chechnya. Yep. Putin has been doing this all along. And I will confess, I don't know about you, I will confess, I was not paying attention. I simply wasn't paying attention to this until he did it in Ukraine. And now, now I'm paying attention and I'm regretting that I didn't do so before. So on this uh, question of endgame, the NATO summit, and I want to get to uh, President Biden's comments, uh, NATO summit, high profile, high stakes summit. Everybody went home. Uh, Jonathan Lemire from Politico uh, writes that Biden returns from the NATO summit with few, if any, concrete answers as to how the brutal invasion of Ukraine actually would end. I think it's rather extraordinary that the West right now doesn't have an endgame. It's unclear. Do we want to defeat Vladimir Putin or do we not? Do we want victory or do we want a stalemate? Because as you're pointing out, a stalemate could embolden uh, Vladimir Putin if he gets a negotiated settlement. And if you and if frankly, and this is what I wrote this morning, you know, sort of channeling Josh Rogan, who I had on the podcast last week. If we want to deter Vladimir Putin from moving on to Moldova or NATO countries, You have to defeat him in Ukraine. This is where the war is right now. You have to defeat him in Ukraine. But it's not clear what the West's goals are here. The Ukrainians aren't making any secret of the fact that they're very disappointed about this NATO summit. Uh, We expected more bravery. We expected some bold decisions. Zelensky's chief of staff said, I mean, Zelensky, he's, he's, he's ramping it up. He says, look, the West is falling short in their efforts. And He's urging them to show uh, even a bit of the courage that the residents of Mariupol have demonstrated. And then he said that the Western countries that are refusing to send more offensive weapons to Ukraine are afraid of Russia. And that's it. And those who say at first are the first to be afraid. So where are we at right now? Okay, so 
I, I think this is a bum rap, Charlie. I think this is a bum rap on Biden, on NATO. NATO is doing a lot. They're sending a lot of weapons and the weapons they're sending are the effective weapons. They're being accused of not sending other things like MiGs, which there's a good argument to make that those are not the effective weapons. NATO is absolutely crushing it with sanctions better than anything they've ever done before. I can I can hear you champing at the bit. What do you want to say there? No, no, no. Go on, go on. Okay. I'm, I'm so, saying a, a lot is 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 a, not the same as enough. They're sending them a lot. The Ukrainians are saying we're the ones being killed. We are telling you it's not enough, and we're sitting here going, "Oh, you Ukrainians, you don't know. Look at all the stuff we've sent you." And the Ukrainians are saying, "Look, we're being killed. We need anti-ship weapons. We need more ground-to-air uh, missiles. We need something like the Iron Dome." and we're not giving it to them. And, right. and okay. if we're listening, and so Zelensky is what? Is blowing smoke, is not credible on this, does not know what he needs, is being unfair to NATO? What? What is your point? Right. Does Okay, so this is a really complicated yeah. thing. Okay, the this, I've, this argument was all over Sunday TV. Who mm -hmm. said that Zelensky somehow doesn't know what he needs? Listen to the man, give him what he wants. He says he wants MiGs, send in the MiGs. It's not that simple, right? And the truth is, yeah, the, the Ukrainians, Zelensky's country is being destroyed. He's going to call out for whatever he can get. And let's be honest, Charlie, if we want to go save the Ukrainians, we need to send NATO troops, NATO planes into Ukraine right now. Stop, and we'll stop them. Now, we'll escalate it, and you know, we'll have World War III, and you, know, you can make yeah, an argument yeah. we should do that. Right? But no, no one's making that uh, argument. No, but you're, but you, I mean, no. do you want to send in troops? Do you no. want to send in NATO planes? So uh, where, what exactly is the thing that we're not doing? Okay. That you want to do anti-ship missiles. Fair enough. Uh, that num one number one, with. more sophisticated air defenses, including something like the iron dome. And I guess the question is if we're sending them all of this stuff now, because and like these, uh, switchblade uh, drones, why did we not send it to them six months ago? What was it? I mean, Josh Rogan says, you know, one of the reasons is the people in the Biden administration just didn't think Ukraine would win. They just simply assumed that the Ukraine was going to be defeated. And there is a certain strain of defeatism here. So all of these questions, you know, why has it been so slow? Why is there the reluctance to give the material? Why, for example, has Estonia given Ukraine more military assistance than Germany? What's wrong with Germany? What is, Ger what is Germ the German calculation here? Okay, I, I'm not going to speak for the Germans. The Germans are doing better than they have done before in terms of committing to defense spending, but they have not sent enough weapons. That's okay. That's so they, true. they get a participation trophy. <laughs> <laughs> but let me distinguish. Let me distinguish between between the Biden administration didn't think Ukraine would win, and the Biden administration is now defeatist. I don't think that's true. I think no, I, it took a very short time for the world to look at the Ukrainian resistance and say, these guys intend to fight. They're fighting like heroes. Let's come to their defense. Let's help them win. I don't think that anybody right now is saying don't help them win. I, no, I um, agree. With, I agree with you there. I think there okay. may be elements, but but yes, in general, I think you're correct. Yeah. Okay. And let me agree with you on some of the specific weapon systems that you talked about. I don't agree about sending the MiGs, and that's a complicated thing we can get to separately. I do agree with you about the surface-to-air missiles, the S-300s. Yes. I mean, can we talk about the MiGs for a second? Because it's part of the same topic. It's 
there's this idea that we should send these planes because like somehow planes will help them con- help the Ukrainians control the air. It's not that simple for a whole bunch of reasons, whether they can fly these planes, what condition these planes are in. But the general rule is what, what's happening in Ukraine is missiles are ruling everything. Missiles right. are ruling the ground. Missiles are ruling the air. The Russians are not flying their planes. They're shooting from distance. They're not flying over Ukraine a lot and like they're at risk of getting shot down. So what the Ukrainians need is the thing that works, which is the missiles. They need the missiles that reach higher. Those are the S-300s. And my understanding is that we're working on that. There's this thing about backfilling. If there's anything you want to complain about, the Biden administration, the Trump administration, any prior administration, it is we need to have this ability to backfill so that the weapons can be sent in. It's crazy to have Slovakia or any other country saying, we have the S-300s, but we're not going to send them until the Americans have them. The Americans are not ready to do that. We should be ready, right? I, th- I think you're right. Okay, so let's dive into the big story. Well, I mean, you know, big story before the Chris Rock, Will Smith thing. Um, <laughs> President Biden gives a very, very forceful speech in Poland. Um, I think it was arguably one of the most consequential of his presidency. And then he ended with nine words. Let's play this. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. Which, of course, they quickly walked back. Okay, so... I have a take on that, but I know that you probably do as well. Gaff, embarrassing gaff, undisciplined, what? What do you think? Okay, so I've already read your take, so I'm going to, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I agree with your take. Oh, no. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, you know, the, the great thing about Joe Biden is he says what's in his heart, and what's in his heart is generally right. It's, he's got good values, and he's saying what we all think, which is Putin, we, we want this world to yes. be rid of Putin. I mean, let's be honest, Charlie. I'll be honest on my own behalf. I want Putin to do what Hitler did in the bunker. I want mm-hmm. him to go in there and sh- put a gun to his head and end it for all of us, right? Yeah. Uh, I can say that. We're doing a podcast. I'm not the president of the United States because Joe Biden says it, channeling the the values of just about everyone in the world. Somehow this is construed as United States policy and that's problematic because NATO is a defensive alliance and we need to keep it together and we're not trying to change the regime, yada, yada. All of which is true, but I got to say viscerally, it I, it just feels right. So let's hear your take. No, I, I agree with you. Okay, so let me just like a flip a coin. Do I want to be critical or uh, supportive here? So uh, look, um, the fact that you're giving one of the most important speeches of your presidency uh, with the world watching at a moment of maximum international tension, and you decide to ad lib something like that is kind of gobsmacking in terms of undisciplined. Really? Um, on the other hand, you're absolutely right. Joe Biden blurted out, it's almost like that, you know, the Michael Kinsley definition of a gaffe saying something, you know, true <laughs> by, by, by mistake. You're an old slate guy. I mean, you know, but, but in this particular case, I, I thought there was sort of a moment of maximum clarity that, that Joe Biden was, was thinking clearly, thinking through the implications of everything he had just said. And that what you had was a moment of real honesty, real candor, and real strength. Now, it was a quote unquote blunder. Because uh, he should not have tacked something, you know, that momentous on the end of a speech. So, yes. But now we get to this moment. And this is what I wrote about this morning. The, uh, you know, the, the moment where it's been done. Okay, so he said it. And the people in the White House and the State Department have to decide, what do we do about it? The President of the United States has just said Vladimir Putin has not, uh, you know, cannot remain in power. So they had two options, right? That even though they were all taken by surprise and it was unscripted and it wasn't on the teleprompter. You cannot unring a bell. So what they could have decided was that Biden's remark had the added advantage of being true, strong, and something that Putin might worry about. And so let's go with it. 
Okay. Um, number two option, scramble to walk back, assure the world that Biden didn't mean what he actually said, didn't mean, you know, regime change. And I hope that there was a debate in the White House. I, I don't know because it happened so fast. I'm afraid there wasn't. But I'm hoping that there was a debate. The supporters of the walk back said, look, we're focused on the dangers of escalation and upsetting Vladimir Putin. But I'm hoping that somebody also stood up and said, look, the supporters of option one, stick with it. Look, if you do this, if you walk it back, you will make the president of the United States look undisciplined, confused and expose these divisions. And it would overshadow one of the most consequential speeches of his presidency. So here was the choice. Rattle Putin, give him something to worry about or discredit and weaken the president of the United States. And this is where I take the deep breath. We know what they chose. They chose to discredit and weaken the president of the United States rather than like, you know, hey, you don't like this. This makes you nervous. Fuck you, Vladimir. So, I mean, but, this seems like a subset of this mindset that we have right now that we are not projecting strength. We are not pushing back on him. We're more worried about, we don't want to say something mean to him. I think they should have stuck with it. Okay. Okay. But, you know, did they really walk back the spirit of the comment? I, I don't think they did walk that back. What they said was this, it is not United States policy to change the regime in Russia, right? Which is true which needed to be said for the for the sake of holding the alliance together. And what was the alternative, Charlie? They can't not say that. They can't leave it out there that Biden said this and leave it ambiguous as to whether the United States intends to change the regime. They, can. <laughs> they leave all kinds of stuff. You can't, you can't do that, Charlie. Say, like that. What did the president mean? The president's words speak for themselves. No, you can't. You can't. All right. You have an international catastrophe of like people being uncertain whether the United States, in addition to driving Russia out of Ukraine, uh, well, I can... well, we have a catastrophe. His words are not the catastrophe. The catastrophe is what's happening in Mariupol. Yeah. Can I point out that this already happened, not to Biden, but to Lindsey Graham, right? Lindsey Graham said on one of his interviews, he said something like that he hoped Putin would be assassinated from within. And then Ted Cruz, of all people. And others came out and said, you can't say that. You can't say that the United States wants the leader of another country to be assassinated. And there's all sorts of complicated geopolitical okay, reasons okay. for that. Right. So let, let's go to my second soundbite, because this relates to this conversation about um, leaving ambiguity. So the, 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 Joe Biden is asked about the big question that we've all been asking, the whole world's been asking. So what if Vladimir Putin uses chemical weapons? What do we do? This is the exchange. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would, re it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross, we'd make that decision at the time. What? <laughs> I, I know, Will, you've taken a strong stand against ambiguity and being unclear, but what? Really? Okay, what? But wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. So I'm the ambiguity and unclear guy, but you're the undisciplined, confused guy, yes, right. right? But I'm willing to right. go for it. If you're undisciplined, <laughs> you just double down on it and go. Absolutely. So, I mean, honestly, what is the, the answer? We'll answer in kind. I have no idea what that means. Right. Okay. This goes back to my longstanding thesis for which there's more evidence every day. Joe Biden is a bad talker. I don't think he's a bad decision maker, but he is a bad talker. He is not confused in the way he thinks about the world, but he is very, very confused in the way he talks about it, right? And using the phrase in kind. Now, Charlie, I have had people, I have had friends, liberal friends, 
you know, say, don't, you're being mean to Joe Biden. He's a stutterer. You're, you're saying it's, a, it's, this is not about stuttering. People who stutter do not have this problem. This is about Joe Biden and his inability to sort of like think uh, clearly and talk clearly when he's, the phrase in kind, right? That's all he needed to do was not say it that way. Okay, but I'm going to come to his defense that I don't think this is him talking. I, I think there's no policy. I mean, it's it's like, it is not as if there is a clearly thought out policy and he's stuttering about it. I don't think we have a policy. Do you? Well, the policy certainly isn't, if you use chemical weapons, we'll use chemical weapons, well, right? And that's what it sounded like. So I want to play another soundbite for you because I thought this was very interesting. This is from Mike Morell. You actually flagged this one. He was the acting director of the CIA during the Obama administration. And he was also the presidential daily briefer in the George W. Bush administration. So he's, he's been around a long, long time. And he's on Face the Nation yesterday. And he's asked about framing the war as autocracy versus democracy. And I think both you and I have argued that, in fact, that's one of the ways Biden ought to frame this. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I, you know, I do think that this is one of the ways that we ought to frame this in the eyes of the world and uh, the eyes of the American people, that this is the front line of the fight to defend democracy. And Mike Morrell has a very different take. He doesn't think that's a good idea. Let's play that. I think we should frame this narrowly. Russia out of Ukraine and impose so much pain on this man that he never thinks about doing this again. I think framing it as democracy versus autocracy drives the Chinese closer to the Russians and makes it difficult for some of our own allies who are autocrats to stand with us. Wow. What do you think about that, Will? So I, I'm listening to Morell, and this is like you, I take the other point of view. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to open my mind to what he's saying. He's being the CIA guy. He's being the, look, we need real, real both, politique. Right? <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. We both know, Charlie, right, that in politics, this is a basic strategic principle, right? You want to broaden your side and narrow the other side, right? So you want to speak to as broad a group. And so he's going so far as to say, in addition to all the democracies that we've united in Europe and elsewhere against Russia, we need to try to bring the Chinese into our coalition, which I understand is that is actually strategically very important, right? We'd like not, we'd like the Chinese not to be bailing out the Russians, providing trade to them, uh, rescuing them when the, when the West won't trade with them. But it saps the whole mission of its moral force, right? right. Like yeah. it, there's something to be said for having an affirmative reason, like, okay, don't get me wrong. Saving the lives of Ukrainians is a big affirmative reason for us to be helping, but also standing for a larger principle, like the Ukrainians are a democracy, then the Russians are trying to crush that. That's something that I'd like to hold on to. I'd like uh, to be able to follow that. Okay, we have radical agreement on this point. Okay, let, let's uh, shift gears. I want to talk about uh, Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas, but uh, let, let's do this on the other side. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like Ray Dalio and Malcolm Gladwell. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You could also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy hitting interview with Gary Kasparov and his experience with authoritarian governments. And that's just the beginning. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Okay, we're back with Will Salatan. Uh, let's talk about the, the Ginny Thomas case. I mean, it feels like it's now like weeks old. 
but the extraordinary text messages uh, that she sent to uh, Mark Meadows, and obviously that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. She was very actively involved with uh, lobbying members of Congress, uh, who knows who else, uh, to try to overturn the election. And it's kind of interesting that that, uh, you know, she's making the argument uh, that, well, no, you know, Clarence Thomas had not, you know, didn't know anything that I was doing about the, uh, any of this. So I guess the question is, how responsible should the husband who's a sitting Supreme Court justice, how responsible is he for the activities of Ginny? That, that's one way of putting it. And the other way is, is it at all plausible that he was not aware of everything she was up to? So I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, he, he, I, I have to, can I confess to a sympathetic view of Clarence Thomas in this situation? I know that's weird. I think this guy, and I, I hesitate to say this, I've read her texts that have been published. I've seen a lot of her public behavior on Facebook. This woman is mentally ill. All right. I just, I, I just think there's so much evidence of that. And if you have ever known someone whose spouse is mentally ill, this is, I mean, i I feel for him. I don't now what he does about it is a separate question, right? Like I think the guy has to recuse himself from all the January 6th cases, regardless of whether he has a personal bias about it because of her. It's just it's publicly too much. But I I really I worry about her and I worry about our country because there are there are just I think there are millions of people like Ginny Thomas who have this illness who believe this in this fantastic, crazy conspiracy theory that the election of 2020 was stolen. And, you know, we, we, we can't have those people running the country, but Clarence Thomas, I think has to recuse huh. himself. Okay. So this is another one of the many, many instances where you've turned out to be a much better person than I am. And I appreciate your compassion, but I do not share it because he has a, a, a role to play, include, you know, as, as a judge, but also to uphold the legitimacy of the court. And I think he's behaved in, in retrospect in a disgraceful way by not recusing himself. Uh, look, uh, for people who are listening, I want to make this point again and again and again. Uh, there is no chance he's going to be impeached. Do not waste time on that. I don't know that there's any recourse, but I do think that at rock bottom, min, uh, you know, minimum, he needs to recuse himself because her activities are not just, you know, over the top and, you know, at, at some level insane, but also very, very public. And I think Amanda Carpenter just does a, a masterful job of just going through all the reasons why Thomas cannot plausibly plead ignorance to his wife's January 6th related activities. I mean, her texts were the subject of all of these media outlets, but her activities have been reported, were very public for months now. When she signed open letters saying that the election should be challenged, this is not something that she was doing in private. She was very public in many of her activities. So the notion that he's not involved is unsustainable. And then the fact that he ruled on the case involving the National Archives release of the records, which probably almost certainly would not have included these text messages. But the fact that he ruled on that, he was the only justice to side with Trump on that and never explained why. And now that we know what's been going on here, I think raises serious ethical questions. Yeah. Okay. So we're in agreement yeah. about yeah. the recusal, right? Yeah. He should not yeah, have ruled yeah, in right. that case or any of these cases. But can I just add one thing? Yeah, sure. Give it, because f coming from my sympathetic perspective on him, he would be derelict as a husband if he did not know about this by now. Friends would talk to him. Somebody would have said something. And for him to close his eyes to it while, while your spouse is just disappearing down the QAnon hole, I mean, rabbit hole, that is, that he, 
so I cannot believe I, I, I have to I choose. Is he derelict as a husband or is he derelict as a Supreme Court justice? And I choose the latter, that he does know about it. Friends have talked to him, that they've talked about it somehow, that he would probably like to bring her out of this again, being sympathetic, but knowing all of that, absolutely, he has to recuse. So you and I haven't had a chance to talk about this um, yet, but uh, last week, uh, of course, we had the whole Mo Brooks story where, um, you know, the the former president uh, unendorses Mo Brooks, um, you know, ostensibly because he had, uh, you know, said to move on from the 2020 election. I mean, the real reason, I mean, maybe that was one of the reasons, but the real reason is he was about to lose. He was trilling in the polls. And, And then you had Mo Brooks, who was as Trumpy as you could possibly get. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, spoke at the January 6th Stop the Steal rally, uh, says that uh, Trump is still pushing him to rescind the election, um, you know, remove Joe Biden from the presidency and reinstall Donald Trump. And and by the way, and that still feels like it's like the 10th biggest story of of the week. But, you know, uh, your, your your thoughts about that. I mean, I, I wrote about it and said, you know, this was, you know, clearly the former president is too crazy for Mo Brooks. What does that say when you are too crazy for Mo Brooks? So weirdly, this gave me hope. I, I watching right. Mo Brooks do do a I forget it was a TV hit, and he he yeah, just several. he said the thing that he should have said from the beginning that they all should have said from the beginning, which is like you know I, I this is just not true. I mean I I don't remember exactly how far he went in in acknowledging the truth, but he basically came back to sanity and said something I can't, I cannot claim you know that what Trump wants me to do I can't keep trying to overturn the election. Did he actually acknowledge that the election was yeah. was legit? I, I don't think he did I, that. I, I think that the formula that he's resting on is that if only legal votes were counted, that Trump would have won. But then what that means, you know, if, if you listen to some of these folks, they, they keep slip sliding and changing what the standards are. Um, you know, sometimes they will say that, you know, because, uh, you know, certain rules were changed, the votes shouldn't have been counted, but that but the votes weren't clearly not fraudulent. So it's gotten very, very mushy. So as long as you basically, you know, raise some question about the legitimacy of the election. You're okay in Trump world. Um, but if you actually said, no, Trump uh, lost fair and square, then you're done. Right, right. By the way, did you see the New York Times story over the weekend about Lee Stefanik? No, I missed this one. Oh, I mean, just another reminder that I think Elise Stefanik is worse than Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and I say that because Marjorie Taylor Greene is dumb as a box of rocks. And, you know, <laughs> to whom much is given, much is required. And the fact that Elise Stefanik, who is very bright, very well educated, um, at one time had a tremendous future as a potential, you know, intellectual leader of the party, uh, that she has now, you know, totally reinvented herself. And according to this Times piece, you know, it, it says, uh, you know, during a, an interview, she repeated Trump's lies about the 2020 election being stolen and refused to acknowledge that Biden was the legitimately elected president. This is Elise Stefanik. Now, it's one thing for the complete insane nut jobs, the mentally ill. But when you have somebody, you know, as Harvard educated protege of Paul Ryan, you know, this tells you what's happening to the Republican Party right now. And, 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 and her ambition is so blind, whether it is she wants to be speaker or whether, and I think this is a very real possibility, she wants to be Trump's vice presidential running mate. Um, she is willing to do or say anything. And I think that, you know, you have people like Nikki Haley and Elise Stefanik, who I think represent kind of the worst of what's going on in the Republican Party right now. Yeah. The the smart people are doing this. Right. Well, the smart people, that's a whole other point. That's a great point about the smart people. So first of all, 
the defining feature, the defining feature of Elise Stefanik, the reason why she is in her job, why she is now a significant person in Congress is because of her lack of principle. Yeah. That is what she has. That It's not some people, principle is their asset. For her, lack of principle is the asset. She was the person who was willing to do what Liz Cheney was not willing to do, right? There is nothing else to recommend Elise Stefanik except the education. And that, as you very well point out, is useless. It is useless to have a Harvard education. It is useless to be a smart person if you have no character, if you have no backbone. And that's exactly what she is. She is a she is one of those people, and the world is full of them, who yeah. are smart, who are well-educated, and who use all of those advantages to do the wrong thing and to rationalize the wrong thing. So could we do like a throwback thing and talk about public policy for a minute? <laughs> Since we're, we're going to have a debate about the budget and taxes that nobody's really going to pay attention to. So we're getting these reports that uh, Biden's going to unveil a budget that will call for a tax on billionaires. I don't know the details of it. Uh, it would, this would be like the 700 richest people that they'd have to pay a minimum, which I must say as a longtime opponent of tax increases, for some reason, this also doesn't bother me to think that, hey, you know, the 700 richest people maybe ought to pay a little bit more, especially when we're running these deficits. But Rick Scott was on, which, which show was he on? Do you remember which? Uh... Uh, Fox. He was on Fox News Sunday. Okay, that's, that that's, makes this even more interesting. <laughs> so he's on Fox. Rick Scott is, of course, uh, the Republican senator from Florida who is the head of the Republican Senate campaign committee who is out with his own agenda. He's sort of uh, going rogue from Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell did not want them to run on an agenda. He puts out this lengthy agenda, which includes raising taxes on about 50% of Americans because he's concerned that everybody needs to pay something in taxes. And by the way, this is a position that I've taken in the past, although now looking at the situation, it doesn't seem quite so compelling to me. But anyway, Rick Scott was on Fox News Sunday and he's asked by John Roberts about this 11-point plan to rescue America. And it's a very interesting exchange. Let's listen. That would raise taxes on half of Americans and potentially sunset programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Why would you propose something like that in an election year? Sure. Well, John, that's, of course, the Democrat talking points. It's a no, no, it's plan. in the plan. It's in well, the plan. But, here's, here, but here's this thing about reality for a second. It's First of all, let's talk but, about but, Medicare. But Senator, but Senator hang Wait, on. John. So it's not a Democratic talking point. It's in the plan. And also in the plan, it says we ought to every year talk about exactly how we're going to fix Medicare and Social Security. Yeah. Okay, so, Will, what's going on here? First of all, I, interesting that on Fox News, they, they held his feet to the fire a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, of course, he's, he, I love that he says it's a Democratic talking point. And they say, no, no, no. no. The, there's a thing called reality. And this is reality. I mean, that's that's a healthy thing and good for Fox that they're practicing some journalism here for a change. However, OK, so this this larger thing is a dispute between and, the, and they go on to do they go on to play a clip from Mitch McConnell who says the opposite. He's like, we're not going to be raising taxes on people. Right now, Rick Scott's position, which which is a perfectly legitimate position. It is that everyone should have skin in the game on tax. Everyone should pay some taxes, right? And this is goes all this goes all the way back to Mitt Romney and the 47%, right. right? So it is a principled position, but it is an unpopular position. And it's so unpopular that even Charlie Sykes is feeling viscerally some 
opposition to this, right? Why make the little people pay more? Mitch McConnell's view is, why would the Republican Party get into this? Why would we propose this thing, which could piss off so many people when we stand to take over Congress this year, right? Just shut up. Don't have an affirmative agenda. Biden is unpopular. The Democrats in Congress are unpopular. Let's just win the election running as the out party. Rick Scott, being some combination of stupid or principled or both, right? Decide that he's going <laughs> to. Yeah. Okay, maybe right. So he puts out this idea, and and as it as the Fox interview shows, he's going to get in trouble, and the Republican Party is going to get in trouble for it. So there's a dispute between McConnell and Scott over whether to take positions that could lose them votes. You see, yeah, I mean, let's just look at this in strictly political terms. I don't know what, what Rick Scott wants to be, what, what he's running for here. Um, but, you know, there's there's clearly a reason why he wants to stake out this this own position. But in just in terms of politics, I think the Biden budget has picked what is undoubtedly going to be a big political winner, raising taxes on 700 billionaires and not on anybody else. I mean, certainly not on the middle class strikes me as eh, that's, you know, that's going to pull well. The Rick Scott position, let's raise taxes on 50% of Americans because the problem with our tax system is that lower income people don't pay enough in taxes strikes me as a political loser that will not poll well. So, I mean, this just seems pretty clear to me. And I think this is one of those rare moments where I think it seems pretty clear to Mitch McConnell as well. Yeah. And, you know, the, the truth is Republicans always say class war when Democrats talk about, you know, helping the poor and taxing the rich. But the truth is Americans believe in class war. They don't believe in like socialism. They don't believe in communism. They're capitalists. But they they believe that, you know, you should help the little guy. And them, that that was why the Democratic Party was politically popular and powerful. And if they could get back to that, they would win. So they would love nothing more than for this Rick Scott plan and for this particular part of it to become the, ba- the, the big talking point in the 2022 election. Yeah. Um, if they're able to do that. Uh, so, uh, what else are you looking at this week? What are you watching? I was interested in the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings from oh, yeah. last week and thinking about where this goes now, because those, those sound bites of Republican senators attacking her were all over the Sunday shows. And I'm kind of wondering how long that will last. Uh, will that, will that, you know, will it, will it go away? She'll be on the court. People will forget about it. Or I, but I kind of think that there that, that interrogation, those hearings, at least reflect some pathologies in the Republican Party oh, and, and its leadership that is going to hurt them going forward. Just sort of a, a lot of the meanness, the misrepresentation, the obsession with, you know, child porn, that very QAnon kind of thing that Josh Hawley was pushing. Um, well, they're not so, worried yeah. about that, are they? I mean, this is the interesting thing about this, uh, that that this was an opportunity for them to, I don't know, uh, have some serious constitutional debates. Uh, they know that she's going to be confirmed, right? Uh, did they actually want to engage in this kind of behavior? And the answer is damn right they did. Um, and because they're not actually, any, part of the pathology is that they're not interested in reaching across the aisle or expanding the base at all. This is this was, you know, how to uh, compete and elbow one another for this these fringe elements of the right. Uh, you know, the QAnon people, the people who are just, you know, think that uh, there's child pornography everywhere. Uh, the, uh, you know, going out this, this, this struck me as very much aimed at, uh, you know, with, within the Republican bubble and, and the competition within the Republican bubble. 
Yeah. And some of the topics that they were picking up are like, it's kind of what's left of the Republican Party, like Marsha Blackburn saying, you know, telling KBJ, you know, can you define the word word woman? And you somehow failed to define it here for us. And therefore you're like trans friendly or something. Or Ted Cruz saying, do you agree with this book that babies are racist? I mean, these little cultural red flags that they're what's left of the party that doesn't believe in, you know, national security, economic freedom. It's, it's kind of sad. Well, it it was. And you know, the, the the fact that they, they made that, that judgment, um, I thought she did. And I, we talked about this on the podcast on Friday. I thought she did quite well. Also, um, here's an interesting tell, uh, the editors of national review have an editorial, you know, uh, Ketanji Brown, uh, uh, Jack Jackson, you know, vote no. You know, they come out against her. And of course, they go through the usual grievances about, uh, you know, Democratic uh, senators behaving badly during previous uh, Supreme Court nomination, leaving that aside. But then I got down to the section where they actually talked about why would you vote no on KBJ? And what really strikes me is how thin the indictment is, that they really don't have a lot of issues about her constitutional interpretation which is why they spend so much time going after her sentencing guidelines. Look, Supreme Court justices don't sentence anyone. Ted Cruz holding up the book about the racist baby, he didn't even bother connecting the dots with any sort of jurisprudence, right? He didn't say, and therefore on the Supreme Court, you will do X, Y, or Z or ask those questions. And so, you know, part of the histrionics was that they didn't have much in terms of her actual opinions or her actual judicial philosophy that they could really nail. If you read the editorial, it's actually very tepid when it comes to the specific things that she has done as a federal judge or an appeals court judge. I mean, the things she disagree with, but they're not, you know, flaming um, red flags. And yet, you know, they're, you know, it's now become a litmus test that every Republican's got to vote against her. Yeah. And can I pick up on a phrase you just used there, which I think is really on point? You said that Ted Cruz didn't connect this, you know, racist mm-hmm. baby book to anything in her, in her rulings, but no. that that's, that is a really good test. That's a good empirical test of seriousness, yes. right? Right. If right. you use a confirmation hearing for the highest court in the land to talk about something that, you know, is not connected to that person's job. And by the way, a lot of these people voted for Katanji Brown Jackson for a lower court. And now when the cameras are on, right now, they're suddenly performing against it. That's another test. This is a test of that. You are doing this performatively. Right. You're doing this to send a signal to your own base about where you stand on an issue instead of using your time to ask the judge about things relevant to her job and the country. Exactly. Will Salatan, thank you so much for joining me again, as you do every single Monday on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. Do this all over again.